a lot of what we've expected of people and it's the culture has become, especially with technology always on longer and longer commutes, things that were pre-pandemic very much life for a lot of us, those weren't working anymore. They weren't a recipe for a healthy and happy life for most people, right? We know the rates of burnout were really high. That's why I say if we just go back to the ways of working of 2019, we're going to have missed the opportunity of our lifetimes probably. There's a revolution taking place right now. Talent and intelligence are equally distributed throughout the world, but opportunity is not. The talent economy, the idea that at the center of work is the talent, is the individual. The way we work has changed forever, and highly skilled talent is demanding flexibility around the way they work and the way they live. This podcast brings together thought leaders, staffing experts, and top talent to talk about the evolving nature of work and how companies can navigate these changes to remain competitive, drive innovation, and ensure success. Welcome to the Talent Economy Podcast. I'm your host, Michelle Labby, Chief People Officer at TopTel. Today, we welcome Tracy Laney, Senior Vice President and Chief Human Resources Officer at Levi Strauss & Company, the iconic apparel brand that makes Levi's jeans. Before joining Levi Strauss, Tracy served as Human Resources Officer at Shutterfly. Before that, Tracy spent 10 years at Gap and Old Navy, another iconic retail brand. Earlier in her career, Tracy was a management consultant and a project manager working for companies such as PricewaterhouseCoopers and IBM Business Consulting Services, where she worked with Fortune 500 clients on everything from organizational design and development to strategic change management. Welcome, Tracy. Thanks, Michelle. I'm so happy to be here. I appreciate it. So exciting. These iconic brands. I still have my <laughs> Levi jeans that I'm hoping to get back into one day. <laughs> well, you know what? We can we can get you another pair. It's okay. You don't have to just have one. You can have as many as you would like. I'll have my goal to get back into the ones I loved <laughs> you know, so many years ago. I'd love to start to ask you about you know how your career in HR began. You graduated from University of Pennsylvania with an English degree, where also a serious ballet dancer. How did those two interests lead you to where you are today? Yeah, it's not something I did not, when I was uh, six years old, dreaming of being a ballerina, I did not envision a, a role in human resources, although I, we can talk about it. I love, I love what I do. I feel like I have one of the best jobs in the world. But yeah, I started out, I was going to be a serious ballerina. I did dance from the time I can remember until I was about 14. And I developed a pretty serious chronic injury in my ankles. And it just became clear that that path wasn't really viable anymore for me. I think a lot of young artists and athletes often have that moment of reckoning where they kind of go, this may not be it. So I then sort of pivoted and dove right into my studies and had this great experience at the University of Pennsylvania at Penn. And that's where I met my husband. I loved you know, being an English major. I sort of embraced the liberal arts degree and loved that it taught critical thinking and sort of the intersection of all aspects of society and the human condition, whether it's English or history or art history, et cetera. And I just loved it. But as a lot of, I think, English majors debate what they learn to do, law school often looks enticing. And that's what I thought I was going to do. Did you have that experience too? The political science major thought I would yes. go to law school. Yep. A lot of us did that. I think the best thing I ever did was I decided to take a job first because I was putting myself through school. I needed a little bit of a break to start making money before I could then go back and think about professional school or grad school. So I worked at a law firm and I realized pretty quickly that wasn't for me at all. It actually wasn't that interesting. It wasn't what I envisioned. 
which I always say, you know, saved me a lot of money on student loans for law school and a lot of sanity and was very lucky. About a year out of undergrad, I found myself at a small boutique consulting firm working in organization strategy consulting back in Philadelphia. I stayed in Philly. And then two years later, my husband and I, then we were then married at that time, came to California. My mom had come here and we loved the Bay Area. It was the beginning of the dot-com boom, if you can dating myself a little bit. It was a great time to be late 90s in the Bay Area, especially as a young person. And I sort of fell in love with organization strategy consulting. I really was fascinated by the organization aspects of a business, leading with business strategy, but then pivoting quickly to sort of all the talent and org strategy that enables the business strategy. And that's where I began my career. And I did that for a long time. I loved it. I mostly at PricewaterhouseCoopers, as you mentioned, and then actually had an early stint at Levi's. Levi Strauss and Company. Early in my career, I was my first internal job. And I always tell people, every consultant who decides to go internal, your worst nightmare is that the project you're working on gets canceled because when you're inside a company, what usually happens is then you get laid off versus just redeployed. And that's actually what happened to me. Levi's had to make some hard decisions at that point. This was around 2003, 2004. And the project I was working on, which was a large-scale technology implementation, got canceled. And I found myself laid off. And that was really hard. But I will say, I say this to folks here all the time, if I had not been laid off, I would not be the CHRO at the company now because that's really where I went to Gap. And I worked for a great CHRO there who actually saw my background and said, hey, have you thought about doing HR generalist work? Have you thought about really pivoting into this profession? So I'm really grateful for those beginnings, but also that pivot that I did, you know, gosh, going on 20 years ago. Wow. A great story. And I was in that same time zone, same location as you, same field. I was at Deloitte and Accenture. And I'm still a big fan of when I talk to young people who are college age or grad school or getting their MBA and and they ask me about consulting, I always am a huge advocate for that, especially early in your career. So I'd like to talk about you rejoining Levi Strauss then, since you joined uh, in March of 2020, the same month that uh, we all went into quarantine, basically. So how did you navigate the company's COVID response and all of the things that go with that while you were still learning this new job that you had just accepted? Yeah. And it's actually crazy. We were already in lockdown for a week when I started. We had announced I was joining the company. I was at Shutterfly before then. I was leaving that company. And we'd announced, I guess, in late February that I was joining here. Actually, the day that we announced I came in, I got to meet with some of my team and I got sort of a little bit of a tour of the office, not knowing at the time that I wasn't going to be back until literally 19 months later. So I originally had this lovely plan to travel and take a few months off. And it was supposed to start in late April. The third weekend, I guess, in March, we we're in the Bay Area goes into lockdown. And I called the CEO, my boss, and said, Well, I'm not traveling, and you really probably need a head of HR right now. <laughs> so I need to just start. I say to folks who asked me this question at the time, if we all put ourselves back in what it felt like in those early days, almost the most important skill that any of us brought to bear was actually just crisis management the time we were all operating with very limited information. Levi's is a very global company. So we had already been through this a little bit in China, but not to the degree that quickly you know, cascaded around the world. We closed most of our stores. We have, store, have had stores open and closed ever since based upon the state of the virus around the world. We pivoted as much as we could to online as everybody did. We had to put safety protocols in place when we decided to re- when we could reopen a few months later. 
you know, this is a 160-year-old iconic company that means so much to so many people, right? And it means so much to everybody around the world. A lot of those decisions were also just helping the company survive. And I remember talking to my boss, the CEO, and both of us were very aware that there's this, that this was on our shoulders, not just, you know, all of us, the executive team, the leaders in the company, that we had to navigate through this. And we were going to do so you know, making hard decisions. We weren't afraid to make hard decisions. We had to furlough employees. We had to lay off employees. And we were going to make all those decisions guided by our values. LS and Co, you'll hear me say Levi's and LS and Co is a very, very values-driven company. So even when we had to make hard decisions, we did it with um, as much compassion and support for people as we could. And what we didn't also know at the time was that we were about to have a series of kind of crises. You know, two months later, George Floyd was murdered. And we were dealing with a reckoning with racial injustice and what that mean, meant for us and where we were strong and where we not weren't strong in terms of our own diversity, et cetera. It was just kind of was one thing coming after another with the pandemic overshadowing all of it. And so we got really very good at crisis management. We got good at leaning into our values. And at one point, we also made the decision as a leadership team that it was our goal to also emerge stronger, that we didn't want to just survive this period in time. The beauty of having a 160-year-old company is you can look back and say, we, we were there during the Spanish flu, right? We were there during the Great Depression. We were there during you know, San Francisco base during the 1906 earthquake. We've been through this, right? And that gives you a little bit of perspective. And so we really felt strongly as a leadership team that we wanted to come out of this period stronger to the degree that we could and, and supporting our employees along the way for certain. And that those became kind of our overarching goals. Yeah. And I think, you know... I- it's funny, my team and I just finished reading, we do a book club and my people, like my larger people recruiting training teams. And we just read Thrive by Ariana Huffington. And I had, after that, had found something that you had written. I was looking on Thrive Global and you said, if we're honest with ourselves, our pre-pandemic ways of working did not actually work so well. As we emerge from the pandemic, if we go back to the old ways of working, we may have missed the opportunity to make our workplaces stronger, healthier, and more productive, which is something I completely relate to. And I'm sure many of our peers in this arena, you know, everyone's facing the same challenges. So what are some of the programs or strategies that Levi Strauss is implementing in this arena? I so firmly believe that in my soul. And and before I answer the question directly, I'll talk a little bit about, we, we have a relationship with Thrive2 as a company, Mariana's company. We have started it, but we had it before the pandemic and we really leaned into heavily. And I'll talk about some of the programs that we do with them because they really are about well-being and having a more vibrant work life, which is which is sort of what I'm what I'm hoping comes out of this period and I'm and I'm working toward having coming out of this period. I personally also read Thrive in 2014 when the book came out and at a place in my life where I was actually dealing with a lot of burnout. And that book really spoke to me because that's basically the sort of the mantra of the book is something that for those who don't know, I, Ariana Huffington dealt with that herself. And then she, you know, kind of went off and started a company to help folks be able to manage their lives in such a way that they don't have that, that confrontation with burnout. What I love about what she's doing and what, what sort of my mantra has been ever since I read that book and, and now I've gotten to know her a little bit and work with work with all of her amazing team at Thrive is really that there is a different way. A lot of what we've expected of people and it's the culture has become, especially with technology always on longer and longer commutes, things that were pre-pandemic very much life for a lot of us, those weren't working anymore. They weren't a recipe for a healthy and happy life for most people, right? We know the rates of burnout were really high. 
that's why I say if we just go back to the ways of working of 2019, we're going to have missed the opportunity of our lifetimes. You know, I also think because of the difficulties it presented, it got us talking much more openly about mental health and well-being. That's something that we've really been focused on at LS and Co for well over a year now. So I could tell maybe a few months into the pandemic, I think it was the pandemic combined with the reckoning with racial injustice that employees were really struggling with just keeping all the balls in the air with managing their kids or their relationships, or maybe they were living by themselves, or maybe they had four roommates or, you know, everyone's situation was a little bit different, but people were really struggling. And so we worked on thinking about how do we actually address well-being in a much more holistic way? How do we take a more holistic look? So we actually created a program called Seamless, which is an acronym because you know it's fabric. So SEAM stands for different words, support, engage, adopt, and model. And that was really meant to say, okay, holistically, we're going to think about the employee experience and how we support people in all aspects. Under the support mechanism, we made sure people had access to additional childcare. We made sure people had access to a therapist. We also really leaned into this relationship with Thrive and made sure everyone had an app on their phone, which they could help manage their sort of daily in and out, like micro steps they could do. Like I started walking during the pandemic almost every day because I could, I wasn't commuting. And it was a way, especially a few months in, I realized this is not working. I have to move more. And it was a way to kind of clear my head in the morning. And we encouraged people at Microsteps, there's many you can do, right? That's part of what Thrive does. That was support. We engaged with folks. We'd had constant dialogue with employees through surveys. We adopted new behaviors. We started meeting free Fridays for our corporate teams. We started giving the last Friday of the month off for our corporate teams for people to really step away. And it became taboo to send emails on those days that we were actually off. And then we invested heavily, heavily, heavily in manager training because at the end of the day, this all comes down to who people have personal relationships with, and that's mostly their managers and their peers. And how do we help managers lead with empathy? And my goal is that we don't let go of this, that all of this comes with us as we imagine a place where people bring their whole selves to work, do work that's meaningful to them, whatever that work is, and has a much better integration between work and life than we probably had pre-pandemic. TopTel is a fully remote company. We have been for the 11 years since we started. There's never been an office. And so for us, it wasn't such a transition for many of us, right? Because we're already working from home and remote. I think the major transition was the people are stuck at home. Their kids are at right. you know, They're the teachers. They're their daycare providers. Or again, as you said, the people living alone are very isolated. And so it's also doing that deeper understanding of how it's impacting their families and and everything. And that's one thing we learned in this empathy space was we did this manager work was that the key there is just understanding what's going on with every one of the folks who work for you, right? There's amazing leadership development and manager development work out there, which I still strongly believe in, right? That's like, how do you, you know, sort of help train managers and how do they manage their teams and set good goals and hold people accountable? And I still believe in all of that. I think this moment though, required something different that was really more based in empathy, which really understands, it means what's going on for Michelle right now? Like what's going on for this person this week even? Because remember it was changing from week to week. Maybe that person's parent had just been diagnosed with COVID. Maybe their kid was refusing to get on Zoom. Maybe we don't, you know, you don't know. There was so many things. And by the way, that's still the way it is for humans, right? Things can change in life. And I don't know that we'd leaned into that as heavily as I think we had to this last 18 months. And that's what we really helped managers know just how to connect with folks individually 
to help make sure that they were seeing all of their employees and their needs. I feel HR professionals by nature usually are empathetic. We have a higher degree of empathy than let's say engineers, right? And I'm saying that my husband's an engineer. I feel like I have a, he manages a lot of engineers. Do you believe it's possible to train people to be empathetic? I believe it's possible to train people to know what's going on with other people. I do. I'm not a psychologist. I can't speak about what that actually is rooted in, but I believe you can absolutely train people to say, here's the kind of questions you ask and here's how you listen and here's how you respond. I also think you're going to have a much more engaged workforce if you do that. If you really are there to listen to how people are doing and what their needs are, than if you don't. And we're seeing that now as people opt out of jobs and things like that. Sometimes I wonder if it's because they don't necessarily feel as heard as they could be. Right. People want to know that they're supported and you care. Let's shift a little bit. So I know that the retail space clearly, as many were, was hit really hard during COVID and you had to cut a number of jobs and you know, your stores, as you had said, that were shut down. How do you manage that transition, not only for the people who are let go, but for the people who actually stayed as well? Yeah, I think any of us who've been in human resources and have for any length of time have unfortunately had the not fun activity of having to lay people off. It's never, it's never the top of anyone's favorite thing to do in human resources. We are empathetic and it's hard. You do the job for more than a couple of years and it becomes part of the job, right? And I think part of that is also balancing the people who are impacted and the people who stay. And I think, honestly, that's one of the reasons that a lot of folks are, you know, you could see this in all companies complaining of workload challenges, right? We've had these blurred lines with online and offline, right? Like it's all online, right? And you're not, you're in your house and there doesn't seem to be any natural breaks. And, you know, as companies have also potentially shaved off headcount, they've had to, people have had to pick up the work, right? So that's been something we've been navigating and part of how we've done it is to really get much crisper about prioritization, something that we're in the process of right now. Now we have the challenge that everybody has, which is you know, not finding enough talent <laughs> and you know, navigating supply chain challenges and everything else. And so for us, it's about putting everything that we have in place, the culture we are, have the values-driven approach to everything that we use during the pandemic to kind of navigate the tough decisions to also bring this to bear now and tell prospective employees who might want to join us, hey, this is what you get by coming to work at LS and Co. And this is what we can offer from a brand perspective so that we're trying to be the most attractive employer as we can be, not dissimilar for how we you know acted during that time. Are you trying to hire now for different types of roles or reskilling your current or previous employees to try to get them back? One of the reasons I love retail so much is because we have all these different kinds of jobs. Like I have folks who work in my stores. I have folks who work in the distribution centers. I have designers who literally design the clothes we all wear, the jeans. I have merchandisers. I have marketing teams, you know, and like everybody, I'm also heavily investing in digital. So I'm hiring a ton of engineers and data scientists and everyone else. And it feels like the, the sort of the breadth of skills just keeps getting bigger and bigger. So I think for us, we're constantly looking at what the next thing is. And I think the one area that probably is we're investing the most in is in the digital space. We actually decided we need a build and a buy strategy. So of course we're hiring, but you know everybody's also hiring data scientists. So that is uh, necessary, but insufficient. And I, we have an amazing head of data and AI who joined us maybe about a year before I did. So going on three years ago, and she's great. And we can only hire so many people. So we actually created the middle of the pandemic, a machine learning boot camp 
where we solicit internal applicants and we get hundreds of applicants to take about 40 spots each cohort to step out of their day jobs and do this boot camp. And then some actually go into the data science realm, but a lot of them actually just go back to their functions. So I had several people in HR go through this earlier this year and increase sort of their skills in this area because we know machine learning and data science is in every aspect of the business, including in human capital side. You've said that you like to ask interviewees the question of what are you most proud of in terms of your leadership? So I would like to ask you, what are you most proud of when it comes to your own leadership? The way I tend to lead is for my team, and I think they'll all tell you this, I lead with sort of two mantras. High expectations, right? I have high expectations of what sort of excellent HR is. Maybe this is the dancer in me. I feel like I've been well-trained in human resources and I know what great is. I know what it means to deliver on behalf of our clients and the company, what great is. And I will always do that with the utmost support and, dare I say, nurturing of my team. So part of it's high expectations, but also I'm here to support you and whatever that means, right? And that means, of course, the work itself, but also the person. <laughs> that is basically my leadership philosophy, right? Which is, you know, set, set have a clear vision, have a high bar of expectations of, of the work we want to deliver to the organization and do everything I can to make sure everyone is really well supported to do that. And that also meant during the pandemic, leading with empathy I mean, every single day, right? Because, it, you know, every single day was different and we had a curveball thrown at us all the time, right? And so that's my leadership philosophy in terms of, you know, I've also intentionally chosen very values-driven companies to be part of. And so the other thing I'm always proud of is when we walk the talk of our values in good times and in challenging times, because honestly, in challenging times is when it's actually harder to do that. And I am proud of the fact that I've been able to work at places, especially this last year with LS and Co, that really has been able to do that and you know keeps the values front and center, especially during the hard times. And that's that's just that's something I'm really grateful for, and it's something I've been pretty intentional about in my career. We publish our values on our culture page so that anybody coming into the company know that our CEO wrote every word of that. So it's, you know, we walk the walk and we talk the talk and we have high expectations, but we all love what we do. And we're all little type A personalities, but uh, we, we love our jobs and we work really hard for the companies. To me, that's like every HR professionals like that. I've never met an HR professional who wouldn't go above and beyond for the company and their, their employees there. So that's also why one of the reasons I love this profession so much is just because it's just full of people who combine that heart and head part of of business that I just think really it's compelling. And that's why I've spent you know my career doing this. And that's why I love it so much. Me too. I love what I do. One last question that I have to ask you, does your dress code require people to wear Levi jeans to work? We tell people to wear what they love. And I think if you come work at Levi's, it's a really good chance you're going to love to live in your Levi's. I wouldn't say that we have that sort of dress code, but it's certainly the predominant apparel that you see walking around. I actually wore Levi's during the pandemic. A lot of people were like, oh, I'm going to wear my yoga pants. I'm like, no, no, I think denim is really comfortable. And so I would put on my Levi's every day, even even though no one could see them working from home. And maybe it was my way of also identifying with the company since I wasn't able to be physically in the building with my colleagues and surrounded by product, which I am when I'm, when I'm here. And so it's certainly fun. And it's one of the things I think I've also missed is when you work in apparel, you know, just 
seeing what your colleagues are wearing is a super fun part of the job and harder when you're only seeing their shoulders on a screen. <laughs> and so I, uh, we are just now kind of reopened our office for hybrid, our hybrid model that we're, we're working in now, which is very, very flexible. And I can tell you one of my favorite things is just seeing all the great, great outfits my colleagues are wearing and getting lots of ideas for what might be available in store and online right now that I haven't checked out yet. So it is definitely a perk of apparel and I, and I kind of love that perk. That's awesome. That's really fun. Well, Tracy, this has been really great. I appreciate you taking the time to talk to me today. Um, I've really enjoyed our conversation and I can relate to a lot of what you're saying and your background and my background and location. So I really appreciate it. Oh, Michelle, it was my pleasure. It was wonderful talking with you and uh, please take good care. Thank you for listening to The Talent Economy. I'm your host, Michelle Labby. You can find much more information about the talent economy on staffing.com and toptel.com slash insights. Hubs for bold, comprehensive content featuring business thought leaders and authoritative research focused on the future of work.